Mother of one, Soraya Wooler, spends her weekends in places most people wouldn't want to venture. As she clambers into a concrete gully at the back of a grey brutalist building and into her local river, the smell hits her. I'm just grabbing a sample here now. I'm going to rinse out my jar a couple of times. Oh, it doesn't smell nice. <laughs> it's something she's gotten used to over the last 10 years. Soraya spends much of her free time like this, wading into the discharge of the seven treatment plants that flow into the river Windrush, a tributary that runs through the Cotswolds and directly into the River Thames. And she's not particularly happy about it. Yeah, what, what on earth has gone wrong that ordinary people like me have to come and look at pollution? Soraya is a volunteer for local group Windrush Against Sewage Pollution, and she's testing treated wastewater that they say is having a devastating impact on the river. This should be a gin clear river. The gravel should be golden. And as you can see today, it's, it's coated, it's brown, it's gray, it's almost black in places with algae. And it should be full of plant life. Why has the health of Britain's rivers been allowed to decline so dramatically over the last decade? To find the answer, we're going to be travelling back to the late 1980s and the mass privatisation of this critical industry. Joining us on this journey is Eyes Environment correspondent Daniel Capuro and senior reporter Ben Gartside who've been following the money to find out why market forces have put Britain's rivers in a perilous position. But first, Soraya tells us why she feels she needs to put on her waders and spend so much time in the most unpleasant corners of this once beautiful river. A few years ago, I had absolutely no idea that our rivers were in trouble. I think it's... it's terrifying to realise that the people you thought were there to help protect something so precious and are not actually doing their job, that nature's police, it seems to me, nature's police are looking the other way. We've just walked past the treatment works and behind me is the outfall from, from the treatment works and we're going to take a closer look at what's coming out of that pipe. We'll return to see what Soraya discovers from her testing later in the episode. But right now I'm joined by senior reporter Ben Gartside and environment correspondent Daniel Capuro who have been digging a little deeper to learn why exactly the health of Britain's rivers, such as the Windrush, has declined so dramatically. Dan, can you summarise, for readers who might not know much about this, what is killing the UK's rivers? Quite a lot of things, but two big culprits, really. So one is the intensification of agriculture in the sort of post-war period. That's due to things like, well, mostly artificial fertilisers, which, talking about rivers, you end up with a lot of extra phosphorus in there, which in theory is a good thing. It's a nutrient, it helps plants grow. 
But what happens when it gets into rivers is they're oversaturated. Certain plants can take advantage of the extra phosphorus and they sort of wipe out all the other plants and they suck out all the oxygen. You know, just like humans on land, if all the oxygen disappears, you suffocate and you end up with these sort of dead rivers. So that's somewhere between half and two thirds of the problem. And then the other major problem, which we're seeing with this case study, is sewage. Britain's sewage system relies on a system known as combined sewage overflows, which is where the pipes that take the rainwater out to sea and the pipes that take our sewage from our homes, our businesses, into the sewage treatment works are one and the same. So in theory, when you get lots of heavy rainfall, they have these sort of valves on the top built into the system where the excess flow will just go into a river. So lots of that will be rainwater, but there's also sewage in there, which creates any number of problems, introduces bacteria, suffocates the fish and the wildlife, poisons the river. There's lots of very unpleasant things. So that's the other big problem is this very old sewage system that, as a backup to stop homes and businesses flooding full of sewage, discharges into the rivers. Aren't regulators doing anything about this? They have been. It's been a very long and slow battle. Part of the issue is that people are paying more attention. So before privatisation, this problem existed, but people didn't necessarily appreciate that there was an issue. But thanks to pressure from various campaigning groups, lots of grassroots groups and journalists like us at the Eye, lots of extra attention has been drawn to it, which has forced the government to act. So they are moving, but it's an enormous problem. When you think about, even if you just imagine, you know, a medium-sized city like Bristol, think about all the different sewage pipes that will be in there, all the different sewage treatment works will be needed just for that kind of smallish city, and then multiply that by the entire country, and you can see the scale of the problem. The government put together a task force to look at the sewage problem specifically, and their estimates for fixing the problem ranged from if you mostly fixed it, but not completely, maybe sort of £18 billion. If you completely, completely fixed it, got rid of absolutely every sewage discharge, the highest estimate was £600 billion. So it's, it's a big problem. So is there the money to do this? Is there the political will to do this? It's a very good question. Yes, but also no. So everyone wants to fix it. Everyone's busy blaming each other. The regulator blames the water companies. The water companies blame the public and the regulator. The public blames everyone. When the water companies were privatised, part of the reason for that was that you had this huge backlog of infrastructure spend. And the Treasury sort of looked at it and said, well, the taxpayer can't, can't foot the bill for this. So the idea was to get private companies to come in and do the job, which sort of works, but private companies obviously want returns, so they need to be able to make a profit on it. Without getting sort of too complicated, the regulation of this stuff is split into lots of different bodies, one of the key ones of which is Ofwat. But Ofwat's main concern is water bills to make sure that we as customers are not gouged for crazy amounts of money. But the issue is that the focus has been so relentlessly on water bills that, you know, successfully, they're some of the lowest in the world, certainly the lowest in Europe. But it has meant that Water companies haven't been able to invest and then put that cost of that investment onto bills to make the money back. To understand a bit more about how we've got into the situation, Ben, I'm keen to learn more about the business model that these water companies have. How do they work? So the water companies, as Dan referred to earlier, were privatised in the late 1980s. It had been part of an ongoing battle where Margaret Thatcher had pledged the idea of privatising them a few times and then it finally happened. As Dan said, once there was this kind of huge investment backlog that needed to be got through. The business models of water companies are an interesting one. Unlike certain other kind of privatised services in the 70s, 80s, 90s, they operate as a monopoly. And it's not like trains where contracts come up after a certain amount of time. It is purely absolutely privatised. And if you live in a certain postcode, that is the water that you get. 
This obviously leads to certain issues or questions. So if you get bad service from a water company, if they pollute a lot, if you have outages, there's very little that you can kind of actually do as a consumer. The consumer power is very low. This means that the water companies kind of have a limited ability as a business model because due to government regulations, as I'm sure Dan will go on to describe later, the ability to raise prices is very limited. So they can't increase their revenue by upping your bill that much. The ability to kind of gain customers is also very limited because if I live in Manchester, I can't go and get Southern Water. I have United Utilities. I have my local provider. It's basically a monopoly situation, right? Completely. And this means that the ability to raise revenue either via individual customers or by expanding their revenue base is very limited. This means that one of the main ways to be profitable as a water company is to cut costs. It's to be efficient. Now, some of that is going to be without any kind of further impact. Other parts of that are going to be that you can't do investments, you can't do the infrastructure spend that we're kind of now seeing the issues come from. And this is something that has kind of been a major question in terms of the business model of water companies, especially those that are publicly listed as stocks, because you have companies where margins are everything, tiny amounts of money and saving and scrimping and spending is hugely important to these business models for their annual reports, for their financial numbers and for their investors. And that is something that is incredibly tough when you're in a monopolized industry where it's very, very hard to gain other customers unless you kind of buy up a previously existing water business. If you'd like to support the important work from Ben and Dan and our other award-winning reporters, consider a subscription. Go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get more than 30% off a digital subscription to I. I for Open Minds. Subscribe today. So we've heard that water companies have a dilemma. Restricted from charging consumers higher bills, yet with an ageing network of pipes and sewage treatment plants, which is urgently in need of modernisation. The result of historic underinvestment is starting to show. So what does this lack of spending on infrastructure actually look like on a local level? Let's go back to Soraya, who has collected a jar of clear but pungent wastewater that pours into the windrush around the clock from the Stand Lake treatment plant. By taking and logging levels of three nutrients, phosphate, ammonia and nitrate, she's hoping to understand how even the treated wastewater is fundamentally changing the chemistry and biology of the river. Nutrients in a small amount are a good thing, but if you put too many of them into a, into a river or into a lake, you get an overgrowth of algae that chokes the plants, you get sediment coating the gravel, and it impacts the entire ecosystem. It blocks light, plants die, you lose the invertebrates, you lose the fish. This is treated waste. So as far as I know, this isn't spilling right now. So technically, this works is behaving as it should but I'm not sure that as it should is anywhere near good enough. 
The first result that Soraya is looking for is phosphate. It works on a colour reaction. Okay, so that's flashing 2.5. That means that the phosphate here is above the range of my phosphate checker. If we want to understand what that means in terms of numbers, anything below 0.3 would be considered a waterway in good ecological health. Anything above 0.3, you're looking at a higher degree of nutrient pollution. Next, ammonia. If the levels are high enough, ammonia can be toxic to fish. Okay, so we've got a reading of 2.07 milligrams per litre of ammonia. This is showing us the relatively constant chronic pollution of ammonia that is just going straight into the river here. What's interesting is this, this works doesn't have a permit for ammonia, so they're not breaking a permit here in terms of putting this, this nutrient in. Finally, Soraya is testing her sample for nitrates, a nutrient chiefly used in fertilisers. Farmers have come under increasing pressure to manage runoff from their fields into local waterways. Yet the wastewater she's testing comes directly from the treatment plant. Okay, so that's giving us a reading of 23 milligrams per litre of nitrates. That, I'm pretty sure, is also under-reading because it's really cold today. So this, uh, you know, you could probably multiply that by a factor of two or three, actually. But yeah, 23 milligrams per litre of nitrates. So nitrates, together with the phosphates and ammonia, are contributing to the overgrowth of algae, the death of plant life, the coating of the riverbed, the impacts on the invertebrate population, and from there all the way up through, through the food chain. So this collapse of, collapse of a healthy river system, the slow degrading of the river systems. The wastewater Soraya is testing is not from a storm overflow. That's where companies pour raw sewage into a river. Rather, it's business as usual, but the impact on the river is still devastating. We asked Thames Water for a response, and they said they have a turnaround plan for the next eight years, which will, in their words, fix the basics, raise the bar and shape the future. The firm's spokesperson told us that they have committed 1.6 billion to upgrading their sewers and treatment works. They said, it will take time and we know there is a lot of work we need to do, but we're making progress. They also pointed out that at Stand Lake, they are within their site permit levels as set by the Environment Agency. So what about the Environment Agency? We asked the regulator about its track record in monitoring the companies. They told us they are holding the water industry to account on a scale never seen before, securing record fines against water companies and driving up monitoring and transparency to ensure the public can see what's going on. They also pointed to the fact that they have penalised Thames Water to the tune of 33 million a year. Full responses from both Thames Water and the Environment Agency can be found in the show notes. So, Dan, what does Soraya's results actually mean for the river? We've got two things going on here. What does it mean for people if they would sort of go into the river and maybe splash around there or, or even have a swim if they were brave enough? 
for that, all three of these are pretty worrying, you know, nitrates, ammonia, phosphates. It's not that you will necessarily get ill, although if all this stuff is in there, it would suggest that potentially there are other things like E. coli is the big one that people look for. So not particularly healthy for a one-off dip, but also having all this stuff on your skin and ingesting it and being exposed to it in the long run is not very good for your health. For the health of the river, the phosphate is the one that you would really worry about for fresh water. So the nitrates and to an extent the ammonia are very similar. That will cause more problems further downstream when it gets out to sea. That's when you'll see sort of algal blooms in salt water. But the issue for the freshwater really is the phosphates, which will lead to algal blooms potentially, particularly in sort of hot, dry weather when the water is very still and the oxygen levels are low anyway. You get these algal blooms, which can be toxic in themselves. The algae, sort of blue-green, pretty smelly and gross as well, but toxic for the fish and general decline in oxygen levels. So when you have these very high levels of nutrients, it's both bad in terms of your health if you mess around in the river, but also it's really not very good for the broader sort of food chain. So it's a pretty damning picture then, isn't it? So Dan, what controls and permits are in place for treated water? So with things like farming, there are some rules in place, some fresh guidelines like the farming rules for water, which farmers are meant to follow. And if you talk to the NFU, for example, the Nationalist Farmers Union, they'll say, yes, we do our best. They'll always be rogue actors. But farmers are meant to be very careful about when they spread muck, slurry, basically animal excrement. And when they spread fertilizer, they're not meant to do it when it's raining, for example. They're not meant to do it on fields without crops. They're not meant to do it near, within sort of 10 meters of watercourses. But in a lot of places, you know, to take another example, the River Wye on the border between England and Wales, the ground is just saturated with phosphate, with phosphorus. And so really putting any more on, it's not going to be useful to the crops there. So you see some progress there, but it's, it's you know, really an intractable problem. And it's about completely changing the way we farm. But then with the treated water... We're basically using systems that have been around for you know best part of a century, and, and they're very efficient. They're very good at producing clean water that's not full of toxins, that's not going to immediately kill things or, or be dangerous in that sense. But the issue is that if you want to take it beyond that, if you want to, for example, strip out the phosphorus, a lot of the time the regulator sort of applies cost-benefit analysis and says it's not actually worth putting in phosphorus scrubbers because you have to use other chemicals, because you have to use lots of energy. It's not very green in that sense. So unless they specifically designate a river or a stretch of river as in need of phosphate stripping, the wastewater that goes into it will be high in phosphorus. And the moment we don't treat our wastewater for medication. So if you take, for example, a contraceptive pill, it's full of estrogen and progesterone. If you take paracetamol, ibuprofen, the body, human body is not actually particularly efficient at using these molecules, these chemicals. And so lots of it passes through your waste into the rivers. That's not stripped out by the sewage treatment works. If you take any river in the UK, it will have lots and lots of antidepressants, hormones, ibuprofen. And the science on this is relatively new. It's quite difficult to do control tests. So the science on that is still, at the moment, a little bit uncertain. But that's another thing to fix, to get rid of. will take huge amounts of energy, lots of money. And really, you would need political, regulatory, public willpower and push behind it to make it happen. Well, let's talk about that solution. What's the kind of accountability here? Are there targets that people are supposed to be hitting? There are. There are, and of various kinds. So one of the things that the uh, Environment Agency has pushed for is monitoring. So when we talk about these sewage discharges, it's important to split between two different kinds. One is perfectly legal. It's because we have this system where it backs up. But those are only supposed to happen in certain extraordinary circumstances. A lot of the time, sometimes because... The public abuses the sewage system. They put wet wipes down there. They put cooking oil down there, things that shouldn't go down there, and they cause blockages. 
sometimes that causes it. Sometimes it's just ancient old infrastructure crumbling. But you also have these illegal discharges that, that happen when there's no reason for it. There isn't really heavy rain. There isn't snow melt. So with that, water companies get fined. The Environment Agency is talking about having unlimited fines. Unlimited fines have always existed, but they require you to go through the courts. It's very complicated. You have to prove lots of things. What the EA is trying to do is have more of these instant fines where there's a lower burden of proof and the EA just goes, right, you've been fined. But that's the illegal discharge problem. With the legal discharge problem, the government has a target to eliminate them by 2050. It wants to eliminate ones in sensitive catchment areas by the mid-2030s. Lots of people say this is too slow. The government's being taken to the courts for a judicial review of whether their targets are too lax. But this brings us back again to the question of who's going to pay for it. But the one thing that is happening is all water companies, at the moment it's only Thames Water who have theirs live, but by the end of 2025, all water companies are meant to have real-time live data available to the public on their website showing when they're discharging and where. Ben, with such a poor picture in the environmental impact of these water companies. I'm wondering how bosses at these firms can continue to rake in such profits when their performance on this is so so low. What's going on there? So the question that is kind of ongoing within a lot of these firms is what is the primary motivator? Because chasing revenue in water companies is actually pretty hard to do. If I'm a boss at a big water firm, it's very flat in terms of my revenue picture, unless I go out and buy other firms and build out my revenue by buying up smaller firms. The issue that this presents is that, therefore, what is the purpose of these companies? Is it to create immediate profit? Is it to build the company into a stronger position by mergers and acquisitions to build a bigger company? Or is it to continually hold on to a company and grow it until, as Dan has kind of hinted at here, regulations change and the ability to grow revenues is higher? It's also worth noting for a lot of these companies, they're kind of waiting to be taken over by others. There's a lot of firms that the ability for them to create revenue, to create profit, to create value for their shareholders is, is relatively limited. And this means that when these reputational issues come along, it puts a lot of them in a quite a sticky predicament. They don't necessarily have the money to deal with these issues properly. They don't have the regulatory support to be able to charge their customers to be able to do more. And a lot of the time they've got mixed incentives from shareholders, especially if they're a publicly listed company. So, for example, one particular firm, Anglian Water, who, when they were giving out their performance bonus to their senior executives, they had kind of three or four different terms in which they were judged on. So if they hit everything, they would have got 100% of their bonus. If they would have hit none, they would have got zero. Most of the performance indicators were based around revenue, profits and financial indicators. And the firm, by all accounts, did great in terms of those in that year. However, where they didn't do well is environmental performance. Now, the board turned around the remuneration committee and went, "Okay, well, you've done great on this. You've done great on that. You've done great on your financial stuff. Here's 75% of your bonus. And they went away. They took away the money for the environmental performance. And then they went, actually, you've done so well, we're going to give you an additional top up. Now, what this actually meant is that all the money that was lost via environmental performance was actually recuperated via this special bonus. So the whole thing was just nullified then? Completely. So they didn't actually lose any money because of a lack of environmental performance. Mm -hmm. Now, it's worth saying there's other firms that have more of their bonus skewed to environmental performance. So it's actually more important that in many ways for them to do great in terms of improving their reputation via sewages and sewage leaks and issues around that than it is 
financial. There's some that are completely moded towards financial. And this is kind of an ongoing discussion within the water industry. Do you think, though, that there's then maybe a lack of prioritisation, at least at some firms, of the environment? So this is a key thing that the regulator has been looking into. And a couple of weeks ago, they announced that there's going to be a lot more of a hard-hitting approach in terms of if a company is not meeting their environmental targets, they will not be able to give out such a bonus. Mm. The issue with that is, is that it's very hard to quantifiably say what is an acceptable environmental bonus in terms of if you miss it, do you miss 100% of it? Do you miss it by a little bit? Do you get 80% of your bonus in terms of those terms? It's a very qualitative thing and it differs between firms massively. Mm. Everyone has different starting positions. If you've got an awful reputation, then you only have bad levels of sewage leaks. Do you get a bonus for improving it or do you still not get a bonus because it's still bad overall? If you've got a great reputation and it only slips to good, what is that impact? And it's that type of thing that in practice will make regulating this incredibly hard going forward. With water companies forking out for intercompany loans and, as we've heard, for fines to the Environment Agency, consumers like Soraya are footing the bill and her patience is running out. My family, our family, we pay Thames Water to treat our waste and I'm not really happy that this is what is happening with that, that money that I'm spending. I think it's so important that we have lots of people understanding what's going into our waterways and where these sources of pollution are and uh, try and actually get something done about it. I think people are really shocked to know what happens when they flush. People are really upset that the water companies are polluting for profit and, and we get a huge amount of support from the local community. Dan, is there going to be a point at which water companies are kind of forced to confront this? Yes, yes, I think so. The government's certainly feeling the heat. Things getting announced lots of times, sometimes multiple times in a week. (laughs) Um, But they clearly feel the pressure. It's such a big, difficult problem to fix. You know, we're talking about performance bonuses earlier, and that's really important. And it's always important how executives are incentivized. But when you look at the money involved in that, that's not that's not going to make any difference. That wouldn't kit out one sewage treatment work. Part of the solution is almost certainly going to be rising bills, which is never popular, because they look at the water companies, they look at the dividends that have been paid out over 30 years privatisation and say, where's all that money gone? And they're not wrong to ask that, but that money alone probably won't, won't fix the problem. The bigger, more intractable problem is the agricultural one. And for that, the sort of new post-Brexit subsidies, ELMS as they're known, the environmental land management schemes do aim to fix it, but they aim to fix a, a hell of a lot of stuff. And that we're really talking about, you know, change over decades, generational change. The moves in the right direction are happening, but whether they'll actually work is really hard to know. And Ben, I mean, from your perspective on the business end, as we do talk about this more and more, as there's more and more attention, is there going to be a tipping point with these firms wherein the kind of reputational cost starts to become actual cost? I think there's a pretty strong argument we're already there. Because if you look at a lot of these firms and if you look at what they're doing, on the corporate side, I can tell you from conversations I've had, this is a really significant importance. Advisors are being hired, images are being managed. There's a lot more of a proactive attempt from water companies to manage this situation. 
And part of that is is that they realise that this is becoming an economic issue. It's no longer merely a reputational one. British water companies are increasingly of a poor reputation. And the issues around that is definitely having an impact in terms of companies, especially those that are publicly listed, really want to go and champion themselves and say, look at all the great stuff we're doing. Even the private ones that are trying to get money from the debt market or the equity market need to have a good reputation when they're doing it. Because if you're an external party to these companies and you're looking at them and going, hmm, are these companies good? Are they going to be here in 10, 20 years time? Are they going to be calling me up in a couple of years time going, we have serious issues? What you look at is how happy are the customers? How does the media represent these companies? Less so the balance sheets, because balance sheets can change very quickly. One things that change over a very long period of time are reputations. So where do they go from here then, Ben? I mean, you've outlined some of the problems that they've got in terms of expansion, growth, boosting that profit margin being very difficult. And Dan's outlined this really expensive fix. So where does that leave us? I think part of it is that they are currently and they are going to continue to try and extol the fact that this isn't our fault. That is the argument that's coming from the water companies to a greater or lesser degree. And they are going to continue saying that. They are going to hope at some stage that this less becomes about what is water company Y doing to where is the government infrastructure? Because there is quite clearly, as kind of Dan has said very lucidly, there is quite clearly an issue in the fact that we don't build infrastructure in this country that has had a knock-on effect on the quality of our rivers downstream, ironically. It's a much wider issue in British society, but this is the argument that water companies will do and will continue to make. There's obviously already been talk of nationalisation. It was a part of the Corbyn manifesto in the Labour Party for 2019 and 2017. It seems like Keir Starmer has scrapped that now, but there is obviously still going to be a question about do profit-making monopolies that provide the most basic of human rights, is that something that should exist within a marketised economy? And I think until water companies clearly answer that question, the fate will be very, very uncertain to them going forward. Just finally, we're coming up to the local elections. We've got the general election in about a year's time. Could the Tories try and position themselves if they do end up in opposition, you know, making clean water their thing? I mean, Ben, as you outlined, Labour aren't committing to renationalising. Where do you both see the political direction from both of the main parties heading on water? I think on the political trajectory, you've seen Labour and the Liberal Democrats try and weaponise this. To an extent with that, you kind of see the shallow nature of party politics because agriculture is by far the biggest problem here. It's not sewage. But you won't hear a peep about that from any politician because taking on the farmers is not politically convenient, whereas going after water companies that everyone hates and they have to fork out a load of money to each month is much easier. And also, you know, the context of it, sewage floating down rivers sanitary pads getting caught on tree branches during floods, stuff like that, just makes people angry. And it's a much easier way to motivate voters. To that extent, it's keeping it in the kind of the political eye and and you're seeing it being a big political issue. And I think that helps and that puts pressure on people. My, My doubt is whether it remains a political priority once the next government comes in, whether that is a new Conservative government or whether it's, you know, a stonking great Labour majority and they have all these other things they want to do, you know, constitutional reform cost of living, all this kind of stuff, whether water will ever get to the top of that priority list, whether it gets quietly forgotten once it's not a useful tool. Because it's not a useful tool to the incumbents, you know, and it's it's difficult and expensive to do. And and even if, say, we had a Labour government come in, they won't have fixed it by the time of the next election. 
they may not even have made enough progress to really trumpet it. So it's a question of will it stay a political priority? I think there's one thing that is an interesting dynamic to this, which is I think the Conservatives know this is an incredibly tough issue to deal with. If we play out Dan's scenario there of stonking big Labour majority, I think the Conservatives know, especially given their rural voters, a lot of communities in the countryside, continuing to shout about this could be incredibly beneficial because I think they know the reality of government that this issue is not being solved in five years. Even if Labour dedicate an incredible amount of parliamentary force to dealing with this, which as I kind of share Dan's suspicions about whether that will actually be true when they get into government, it will still not be solved in all likelihoods. Therefore, the ability for Conservatives to kind of reclaim a lot of the areas that it could look like they're going to lose in the future, to go, this is awful, this is still not being dealt with. And I think one issue that hasn't quite been touched on today, but is a huge driver in terms of river pollution, which is new build housing estates. I think there is definitely a kind of sharing of issues there that Conservatives can go, we're building a lot too much in our green countryside. Water companies are still not doing enough. Labour haven't dealt with the issue. This is something that's going to continue to be an argument that they're going to champion in the future. I see that of a really high likelihood going forward. Interesting. Well, you two are certainly doing your best to keep this very high up the political agenda. So thank you for all your brilliant work on this and for coming on and talking to us about it today. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having us. You can read more of Dan and Ben's reporting as part of I's Save Our Rivers campaign at inews.co.uk. You'll also find breaking news, in-depth features and insightful political analysis from our team of award-winning writers. The video following Soraya and the Windrush Against Sewage Pollution Group undergoing the testing of the Windrush is up on our YouTube channel now. Search at the iPaper to have a look. That's all from us this week. I'm Molly Blackall. You can follow me on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at molly.blackall. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.